Hey everybody, welcome to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast, where we are busy demystifying the complex world of cybersecurity. I am Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I'm a cybersecurity architect, and uh, I'm Ryan. And in his continuing and desperate attempt to have a varying and at least somewhat random approach to his introduction, Ryan again sort of changes a little bit of the order of how he decides to do things today. I apologize for how I sound. One of my kids apparently got me sick again because that's all kids do. If you pay attention at all to popular culture, watch any TV shows, watch any movies, hear anything really about the internet, you've heard this ominous sounding term, the dark web. I feel like every single police procedural, every single show that involves the use of technology or involves the internet or involves some discussion about things like drug smuggling or anything like that, you get this boogeyman called the dark web, which is basically the digital version of the guy in a hoodie who walks up to you and says, hey, you want to see what I got? The omnipresent bad guy willing to sell you anything or help you help connect you with anything bad and anything evil. And I think that there's an important context to be had in all of this. And it takes me back to a discussion that I remember every single time I see the U.S. go to war with anybody, someone sends me a meme or a couple of memes comparing whatever the existing situation is to the Lord of the Rings. Every single frigging time. Because every single frigging time, someone is so gung-ho about whatever we're doing that we are the white paladin and knight in shining armor, not even the hobbits. We are Aragorn. We're the definition of good. You have my sword. Yeah. And whoever we're going against is always Mordor. It's always this encapsulation of evil, of darkness. And I'm not saying they're necessarily wrong in a generalized context, but it takes the real world and puts it into this strange caricature that just doesn't actually exist. So I feel the same thing has been said about the dark web. Now, obviously, the term itself, dark web, doesn't help in that context, but this vision we've been given of it casts it in what is automatically and completely a dark and sinister light when the bottom line is, like everything else, there is a real world that exists in that 98% of everything that is not black or white. It's a gray area. There is definitely bad things going on. There are also definitely things that aren't bad. Some might even say good going on. But we really need to know what the dark web is. That's the other thing that these tropes in my mind really fail to get across. They make you scared of the dark web. And one way to keep you scared of something is by making sure you don't understand it. So we are going to do what is in our namesake. We want you to be unafraid because fear makes you irrational. We want you to be paranoid, but we want you to be paranoid about the things that actually exist. So Ryan, let's get started with some definitions here. What are we talking about when we talk about the dark web? And I know you have a a few categories you want to go through here. Yeah, typically in the industry right now, as it relates to like the dark web versus the rest, it typically gets broken down into three real categories. You've got the surface web. That's the World Wide Web as we know it nowadays, the part where everybody goes and interfaces with the things. Those are all your www.whatever sites, the stuff that most people can get to, the stuff that's indexed, the stuff that's searchable through all your general search engines and pieces like that. Basically, the internet as the average person knows. Underneath that, you've got a much larger actual piece of the internet as a broad whole. The surface web makes up probably a fifth or so maybe of the entire internet. And again, 
again, that's just kind of a ballpark number that probably varies wildly. But behind the rest of that, you end up with a couple other major chunks of the internet. You've got the deep web and the dark web. The deep web is also one that your average person tends to be familiar with in some aspect. If you log into your Gmail account and you're sitting in your inbox, that's going to be part of the deep web. That's not something that's indexed. That's not something anybody else can readily get to, but it's still part of the internet as a whole. It's part of the, the entire network. Paywalls inside of, uh, you know, like your shopping cart and stuff in Amazon, that's all hidden behind a login. Uh, if you've got a login to a website where there's some specific documents or something back there that you can't get to without a membership, all of those kind of things, uh, private company networks, private personal networks, anything else that's really that non-indexable part of the internet is really considered the deep web. And that makes up kind of the lion's share of the majority of the internet that's out there is this big non-indexable, but public-private space. So before we go on there, I want to make sure that everyone who's listening has just a very basic understanding of what we're talking about when we say website that's been indexed by the search engines. If you haven't ever put together a website before, one of the options that you have when you put a website together is to ask for search engines to crawl your site, which basically means that they have their bots that go over your site. It's how they read all the words on your site. They also read the headers, the information that is essentially behind the site in order to direct people searching it to your site. So you don't need just the pure address code to get there. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about indexing, right? Yeah, in a lot of cases, it's actually tends to be more opt out than opt in. You can go make requests that they come through and index your site. And usually that's for your own benefit. So you can get an update to your search information or your search meta. But in a lot of cases, those crawlers, those the Google bots and the other bots that do the crawling, crawl around the internet all day, every day, following links, following different leads to try and uncover and index everything that they can. So in a lot of cases, it will index anything that it's specifically not being told not to index. Just to slide as many weird double negatives <laughs> and whatever in there as I can. But uh, if you get to a site and you set in, uh, this is old school language, if you set in like your robots file that you want this to be a no crawl or in WordPress, there's flag settings to tell robots to not crawl your site. Now again, the bots don't have to abide by that, but most well-programmed legitimate web trafficking bots will abide by a no crawl request which means they will just get there, they'll read that file, they will see that they're not supposed to be indexing, and then they will just move on to the next thing without actually indexing that site. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. I do want to jump in and say real quick, one of the interesting things about this deep web versus regular web, if anyone has been paying attention to privacy law over the past five years, you've heard about something from uh, that originated in Europe called the right to be forgotten. And it was this interesting notion that you could actually get a court to issue an order that information about you that's on the internet that is either incorrect or due to the passage of time has become incorrect or in certain circumstances due to the passage of time should no longer be accessible that you can ask for that information to be removed. The reality is, is what these requests are doing when that request is sent to Google under a right to be forgotten is that it essentially de-indexes that information. It's not that the information no longer exists on the internet, as we'll talk about in greater detail here in a little bit. It still exists, but what it means is that it can't 
can't be found on a search engine. And since the vast majority of people do the vast majority of their internet access in the regular web, websites that have been indexed and can be accessed by a search engine, that's what it means to be forgotten. Sorry to interrupt, Ryan. Go ahead and continue. No, I think you're good. So I think that realistically, we've determined that there's the two big pieces of the public average user portion of the internet. There's the surface web that we all know and we see, and there's the deep web, which is the stuff that we access when we're given rights or permissions to get there. And then beyond those two big pieces is where we get into that kind of dark corner of the internet, which kind of sits in between the surface web and the deep web as far as like how it's put together. Some of it is paywalled, locked down. Some of it is open-ish. And when I say open-ish, I mean it's open as far as you can get to the sites if you know how to get to them. They're not most of them being openly indexed and you can't get to them through standard means. So you can't just open up a regular web browser and just browse to these sites. These are part of a very specific protocol. Most of them are part of what they call the Onion routing project. And so these are sites that end in .onion. They require a special protocol, special encryption in order to access. And they are served up through a system called the Onion Router Network or the Tor Network. Again, specific browser, specific set of networks to access these, and they are effectively services that are hidden behind a variety of relays that all make up this network. Thousands of computers working together to proxy and relay traffic back and forth through a web which makes attribution of the initial traffic extremely difficult. So it gives you effectively like a sense of anonymity, both from the service host and from the user, the consumer's side. Let me ask you a question on that anonymity there real quick. Obviously, because you need a specific browser to get there, oftentimes these are also, my understanding, they tend to be frequently access restricted, right? Well, so it depends too. So again, just because you have access to the Tor network and you are on that browser, there isn't like a Tor-based Google that you can just get to and say like, hey, I'm just going to search the dark web. Again, it's not indexed. So you really have to have full knowledge of what you're trying to get to, how to find it, either a link there directly or just, again, knowledge of the path. So nothing's just kind of open mm-hmm. and easy as with the rest of the internet. But again, each individual service has the availability of either being public or private inside the Onion Routing Network. It could be a website that just has information on it that you access. It could be a login page that you hit that then, of course, is serving up authentication and other closed services. So that's where it kind of pivots a little between surface web, deep web, as far as like that type of relationship in the dark web itself. It was interesting to me then that it's not just an attribution issue. Running a site on the dark web, you do have all those tools available to prevent someone from necessarily discovering that what you've posted on the dark web is you. But you also have a lot of tools at your disposal to prevent people from accessing the information you put on the dark web. Yeah. Again, they're going to be similar tools that you would use in the other portions of the web as well. What you get is you get a little more obfuscation as far as like finding the asset. So once you get to the asset, again, you protect it or serve it or deliver it the same way you would any other public asset. It's just the path there is kind of a jumbled mess on purpose to help protect there being direct knowledge between the consumer and the deliverer of the product or the service because of that web in the middle. And that's what allows that kind of anonymity at the connection level by making it really difficult to tie those two end pieces together. That doesn't stop anyone from using a variety of different techniques to try to de-anonymize some of that traffic. It has been known to have happened in the past. Again, it's not technically easy, but it definitely is a lot more challenging to make that kind of full traffic identification due to the way that the relays and the proxying is set up. 
You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. Okay, so now we've talked a little bit about what the dark web is, and you used an example, and I think it's the biggest example that we can reference of the dark web, which is the .onion domain. But obviously, the dark web includes other similarly styled networks, be they small peer-to-peer networks or larger ones. I think Freenet is one of the ones that I've read about. So it's a difficult-to-access system. It's not just that it's uncrawled and unindexed. It's that it requires these specific means to access the the pages themselves. Correct. Yeah. It is effectively slightly isolated from the standard generally browsable internet. And it was done that way on purpose because of what the intent behind the network was. Again, it's easy to put things in the deep web and just kind of have them there. But the purpose behind that was to provide that level of anonymity to really break down the ability to easily attribute things. And again, that wasn't purely for malicious purposes. This was a system developed by the US Department of Defense at one point in time. Of course it was. And part of the main reason behind it, initially, the initial intent wasn't to serve up sites that were going to sell drugs or malicious services. It was to allow unfettered encrypted communications, non-attributable, non-trackable, non-traceable to occur through this network. And so again, there's a lot of decent uses to the dark web as well. There's a lot of journalists in countries that are under fire from whatever government restrictions, regulations, opposing parties, whatever, whoever else. The dark web is a space that has both really good and bad uses, but that also just makes it a very, very big gray space that will never be anything other than just numerous shades of gray. I do think it's very sweet of you to assume that this wasn't created by the government in order to sell drugs or perform illicit activities. That's very nice of you to assume there was no ill motive when they came up with this. Well, I would, yeah, I would just think that if their goal was to sell drugs, it looked like that it would have been easier to hop on the bandwagon of legalization and taxation rather than going through this big smoke and mirrors event of building a... Oh, are you kidding? Then they can't use them to discredit entire minority groups within the populace like they did with the crack epidemic. So let's talk a little bit about that. So the dark web, obviously, there are the big stories that we've known about. Silk Road being one of the earliest major takedowns. There have been several other notable takedowns that I have read a lot about. Despite my experience and despite the work that I do, I avoid the dark web. And I've got an expert that can help me navigate the dark web whenever I need it. And so I don't spend any time there. Give us some examples as someone who has at least attempted to wade through it on occasion. What kind of things is the dark web used for and why? Oh boy, that's a loaded question. Um, So again, let's start with some of the legitimate uses that still exist for it. Getting information out of places that might otherwise be really challenging to get information out of because of restrictions in the flow of information, restrictions against freedom of the press, things like that. This provides, along with like VPN services, the Onion Routing Network provides another way to get that anonymous level information out without tying it back to whoever the originator was and thus putting them at unnecessary risk. That's probably one of the best legitimate use cases is for that type of traffic. Again, you could expand that communication layer to any other type of communication that needs to be protected. Whistleblower. Yeah, anything where that communication would provide risk to the person trying to communicate. This offers them an ability to communicate with less 
risk, while also probably preserving the ability for the person receiving the information to authenticate what they get. I'm blanking on the publication, but the group that published the documents that Reality Winner leaked from the NSA, which kind of blew open a whole new aspect of the investigation into Trump's collusion with Russia, the news organization that published the documents that she leaked literally asked the NSA to confirm the authenticity of the documents and provided the original documents, which included the invisible printer stamp identifying the person who printed the documents, which was a blatant and horrible violation of journalistic ethics. You never, ever do what they did because you're exposing your confidential source. And you can think what you want about leaking government information. I personally have been of the opinion that in the past 30 years, no matter what administration has been in office when the leak has happened, almost everything that I know of that got leaked out prior to this most recent moronic leak over Discord has been of information that should never have been kept secret in the first place. Now, the guy leaking over Discord was leaking to non-journalists. Journalists take great pains, if they're good ones, to make sure that no damaging information gets out. The guy leaking stuff about Ukraine was giving away potential defensive secrets. That's just dumb. But all the government leaks, no matter what administration they've come from, that have gone through good journalists, have all been leaks that I think have been important to opening up the black box that is our system. But I would imagine anything where you'd need to be able to both authenticate and keep confidentiality, the Tor browser would be ideally suited for. It's definitely a step in the right direction if anonymity and lack of attribution is one of your primary goals. It's certainly a really good spot to start looking at those things. However, um, like with all other things, you need to be responsible again if you're going to venture into the dark web. So know exactly what your intentions are, know what you're trying to do, and assume that everything else is a major risk. So I think we largely know what the dark side of the dark web covers. Everything from drug trafficking to human trafficking Yeah, offensive services like hitmen and other harassment services, swatting, all the other different things that have come out nowadays. Anything that benefits from that confidentiality that we were talking about. But what I want to actually ask you, because we don't have a lot of time left, is you have mentioned this before. that When you go onto the dark web, you have to know what you're doing, what you're looking for, and it helps to have some experience. What risks do people who aren't entering into the dark web with an awareness of what it means to be there, what risks do they face? Everything. Whatever device you're going to use to go access the dark web, if you do not know what you're doing, assume that as soon as you connect to a single service there that you've given up every piece of data and potentially control of that device. That's probably a safe assumption. A lot of businesses, when they do their risk profiling, they've started to use the term assume breach, which is just kind of assume worst case scenario. That's really a good approach to take when you go into the dark web because, again, it's very lightly regulated. Well, I'm sorry, it's unregulated. We'll just go there. If you go to a site, there's nothing stopping them from putting any sort of exploit right into the front end website code. JavaScript that runs malicious stuff is very common on the dark web. So all you do is go to a site, JavaScript automatically runs, your browser runs it, and next thing you know, you've got malware on your system. Just that simple. The majority of the dark web is set up by people that are there with malicious intent now on most of these services, which means if you're fighting against them with malicious intent, there's very few things that they're not going to consider doing if it's going to further some of their benefits. And a lot of these malicious intentions are driven by financial motives and access to information and access to systems is a valuable asset. So I think that's your biggest risk is becoming part of the bot nets, becoming part of the information gathering, losing your information there, uh, potentially getting exploited, getting blackmailed or being extorted in some way. 
That's what I was going to say is putting yourself at risk of becoming a tool of some of these people who do these things. Yeah. And if you have contact lists, you're potentially passing that risk on to people that you know and love also without even understanding it. Because now if they take all of your information, what's to stop them from going to somebody on your list and saying, hey, by the way, I'm about to release all these graphic pics I found out onto the internet because now I found your email address so I can email his mom and just say, hey, why don't you send me a bunch of money before I put your son's stuff out? I'm going to do it in 10 minutes. If you call your son, I'm going to release him immediately. And then something like that is simple enough to get somebody to panic send a bunch of money or something. And they might not have even had the pictures or anything. It might have just been intent because they got a hold of an address list. So you put a lot of people at risk just by doing weird clicks on the regular internet, but the dark web doubly so, if not many, many more times dangerous. Well, I think it's helpful to know. It's helpful to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the dark web. I really want to explore this a little bit more, but we are unfortunately out of time for today. I want to remind everybody that if you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe using any of your favorite podcasting platforms. We are on all of them. Also, please feel free to share this episode to anyone you believe might find it useful. Follow us for updates on any of our new posts. You can subscribe on our website, fearlessparanoia.com or on any of our social media pages. If you have any suggestions for any topics you would like to hear about, or if you have any just feedback for this podcast at all, please send us a message at info at fearlessparanoia.com. I want to thank you for joining us today. And on behalf of Fearless Paranoia, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>